0: I've always thought fundraising is a, a, a kind of necessary evil. I've never particularly enjoyed it, it's, but I think you can learn a lot to, about it. Yeah. And if you go in with that negative mentality, it's not a good way to look at it. But if you look at it like, okay, this is actually a kind of challenge, a competition, it's, it's something I can learn and get better at, and it is a skill I need to learn, then it's, it's really interesting.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the Back Self Show. This week, I'm really excited to have on the show, Tom Barber. He is the CEO and founder of Pre-Warp. He's a super interesting guy. He went through Entrepreneur First, which is a really cool program. He talks about that in detail. Also, he's got a pretty cool hack for uh, learning about startups, which I'll let him share. I really hope you enjoy the show. But I'm particularly yeah. interested in is how you came about to create Pre-Warp. Because yeah. you you went through the EF program, exactly. Entrepreneur First. So talk to me about what is Entrepreneur First? I don't really know.
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so Entrepreneur First is essentially like speed dating, but for founders. And okay. so I came at it through... A friend from university, actually, I was in Horsworth, went through very early on, and they're one of the like core success stories of EF. They they founded Magic Pony Technologies. Magic
1: Pony is a sick name for a company. Exactly, it's also
0: kind of what you want to call your company, massively tongue in cheek. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And then they went on to sell it for I can't remember the exact number, but let's say two hundred million to Twitter, which is kind of the. It's good. I heard about EF through them. They were a wild success story. Guy Mm. called Zihan, who I went to university with, Um, and so it was always kind of in the back burner. But this was probably. Four years before joining, and then um, I guess without giving too much background, I was a GM at a company up till then. Realized I wanted to start something, and so
1: what was sh- what was shit about being a GM that
0: made you want to stop doing it? Well, with, yeah, don't want to kind of you know shoot myself in the foot too much, but it was tricky being a GM. I was running Europe for a San Francisco-based company, and so not only like on one level it's just the travel, second bit is the time zone yeah. thing where you're constantly yeah. taking late calls in the day, yeah, and the third is like just we launched it. So me and a a friend launched it um, as in the company in Europe. Yeah. And it's ultimately like starting a company while also having a boss, which is kind of, can be the best of both, but actually often I found the worst of both worlds. Like you're fighting for budget. You don't have any autonomy. You're also accountable to KPIs. They're kind of, sometimes wildly it's I mean, one of those yeah. stories isn't it, where you're like you're
1: <laughs> yeah. you're hanging out like with your mates at a bar and you're like yeah, yeah guys so i'm um, actually a gm or this the european gm this massive uh san francisco startup it's really impressive it gets all the buzzwords it's in really there. Good. And, and then, and the then reality, actually you're yeah. stuck in this two by four foot office on your own on a laptop and you've got yeah. you're like what time do you start work about half five tonight yeah is when they wake up and then he's like oh my god why haven't you done this and then you're yeah. like Oh, hey, my man, life. Can
0: we see your office? It's like, all right, we're in a glass box and we work yeah, without exactly, any yeah. sunlight. Yeah, but all, I'm a GM. Yeah, that massive. Yeah, I you have a sick looking LinkedIn, so that's all that matters. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I get it.
1: I get it. <laughs> yeah. And but, so you, but you, but you got the bug there because you felt the vibe of starting something from scratch.
0: Well, actually, so bef- I mean, full story, I, I founded a clothing company. Oh, nice. A long way back, but I used to run a clothing company, which was off the back. Well, I started as a, in finance, as a lot of these stories start. Oh, so I, I started off in finance. Co-running a, a fund that was investing in China, which okay. was very fun. We'd just go out. When to, was that? That's a very good question. Probably ten years ago. Fun Australia time to of, be investing in
1: China. It was really yeah, good. Good fun.
0: numbers. Wild World West, we'd go out there and you literally your due diligence was does this company exist? So you'd nice. be investing in something when the, yeah. the Hong Kong Stock exchange, you have to go and DD whether a factory actually exists, whether they're actually making what they say are, which is kind of fun.
1: Were there examples where it didn't?
0: We didn't come across any, but there are wild examples I bet before that. Are. We were it always feels like Whenever you're investing something new like that, there's always people there that have been there as the old guard and they tell you war stories beforehand yeah, yeah. where it's like, yeah, we couldn't even get into China to invest beforehand. So we had no idea. Yeah. We had to. So, um, yeah, yeah nice. that was wildly fun. And then I, I was an athlete initially back in the day. So, uh. An athlete. Yes. For what sport? The most random sport in the world. Uh, modern pentathlon. It's, what is it? Wait, just how it's riding a horse. Yep. <laughs>
1: fencing. Yep. <Yeah>. Shooting. <laughs> Start with the, the cool ones. Yeah, sh- shooting. shooting yeah. Running. Running, Yeah. And swimming, swimming of course but actually it's even
0: it's so they combine the running and shooting it's almost like a winter biathlon on thing which nice. is the, the climax of the whole thing and so i guess the reason i bring that up is i started a, a sports web app so i left finance having kind of struggling with the whole like raison d'etre of investing money there's not a huge like uh benefit like greater good that you're creating there i came from a background where my parents were doctors which is like pretty obvious yeah. what you're doing there amazing so um Dodo Sporto brand ran that, which was very good. So, got the bug there of running a business, but also felt the pain of creating physical products. Like you felt like you were a 16th century merchant all the time, like buying fabric from Denmark and shipping it to Italy, and getting them to cut it into sizes, and then shipping that out. And it it is a it is surprisingly
1: hard to make physical products. Also, like I've literally we've had we've got two we had two. So, Snag Tights came on the show. Okay, Um, Snag Tights. They make um, tights. Okay. they've been sensationally uh, impressive um, over oh, the no. course of their journey um, because they found a real niche Yeah, yeah, yeah. make quality product. Um, but when you talk to me about it, like how the fuck do you differentiate in a clothing brand? I mean, like a t-shirt's yeah. t-shirt to me. Like I've got no idea. Like the difference between like Under Armour and Nike, I don't know. And if you're moving into the sportswear space, like how do you differentiate from there?
0: It's very good like our, our initial premise was local manufacturing. And I right. think that's something that has been consistent throughout. It's like trying to like local sourcing local manufacturing we had a factory in london which was really quite fun we could actually go down to mile end speak to the guys that are making the clothes have a very kind of quick iterative cycle around design which was kind of fun but ultimately they went bust because you know clothing manufacturing is just not sustainable especially in london where you know it's wildly expensive i bet it's
1: really expensive yeah so
0: that was an interesting journey in a most of fashionist brand as you mentioned there what's your differentiator but also like making physical product is pretty antiquated in a lot of ways. And after that I went and worked for a large software company, you know, seeing the attraction of not dealing with physical products. Sure. um, And learn a bit about that. And then the most recent role as a GM, which we were talking about, was essentially combining software for fashion brands, basically. And that was the attraction there of kind of combining the two bits of background. Um, But they were essentially surveying customers about new products that wouldn't reach market for 12 months. And so your feedback loop there in terms of whether you're actually doing anything right It's so long that you don't really get any read on on what you're doing. So uh, I went into EF to kind of circle back to your initial question. Um, The idea was not to do anything within fashion, actually, to steer away from it. Did you have
1: an idea going in?
0: um, I had some ideas working as a GM. I was like, okay, there are things here that could be fixed. Yeah, sure. That actually we ended up focusing on, but my idea was actually to move away from fashion. My background was in science. I did natural sciences and, right. and, and genetics specifically back in the day. And there's some really interesting things happening there with a com- combination of, um, AI and, and genomics or proteomics. These are all really good really buzzwords for raising money. Oh, yeah, yeah really good. You can wise. say AI, proteomics, a- oh, and, you know, mate.
1: drug discovery. You just, just, just take my money, right just there, take it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> say fashion or retail analytics <laughs> like, to people and it's kind it's of the tight. Opposite. <laughs> yeah, I get it, yeah. <laughs> but it's super interesting. Um, and so I went in with the complete opposite, but I guess as, as these things happen, it's EF essentially takes half technical kind of, let's call them founders, but before they're founders, so half technical PhDs in material science. Some people ended up doing space propulsion for, for satellites, which is kind of cool. Oh, that's cool. Like a real spectrum. And then the other side is, operators or uh subject matter experts basically great and okay. they essentially just mash the two together in a kind of weird speed, amazing speed dating type format and um and you go from there so yeah.
1: Serious, straight questions coming in so yeah. you are the ceo yes so you great. meet this dude yeah, yeah okay who becomes your co-founder because like you know you both come into it like yep. tell me how that conversation goes i
0: so ef having done this a lot they have pretty solid structures in place for those just those conversations up front at the Amazing. beginning, they say like, look, you need a CTO and you need a, you need a CEO from the beginning. You need someone who's going to build it, who's going to do it from a technical perspective. and You need someone who's going to be able to sell it and hire and do the rest of um, the roles. In terms of Tom and I, confusingly, my co-founder is also called Tom, which is how um, I'm we glad were, he's not on the show because that'd be a really complicated conversation. Yeah, well, you just imagine any sort of conversation. <laughs> it's awful. Awful. like, Tom, what do you want? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but we were, had the added complication of doing it during lockdown the first lockdown so it was all remote so tom and i my co-founder didn't even meet each other until three months into starting the business which is kind of interesting wow um but they have very good structures to proactively have those conversations up front over who's going to be the ceo who's going to be the cto what this how that looks mm-hmm. it is always 50 50 which is kind of a nice way of doing it some people come in with ideas and then it's an awkward conversation around how you split equity yeah so on.
1: it was your idea wasn't it pre-warp
0: it was my idea yeah in in terms of in the industry i have experience in which was nice yeah but tom brings the technical chops to kind of pull it off which right. is a really nice way of doing it so on the whole that's how it fleshes out It's someone brings the technical expertise and someone brings the the kind of subject matter or commercial angle
1: perfect so how did you okay so well let's um let's move on to pre-warp yeah yeah what does it do tell me about it and not, more importantly it's actually, tell me first like what was the problem that you saw first and who was having it
0: so the problem we were tackling first was and it sounds a bit big and buzzwordy. It's like sustainability within fashion is, is a very interesting topic. I don't even really know what that means. So, so help me understand The it. numbers in the fashion are pretty crazy. Like it produces more CO2 emissions than global shipping and, and uh, aviation combined, which is kind of nuts on, on an Wait, annual basis. So
1: help me understand that. So when you say it produces more CO2, yeah. my instinct is that it's because of the shipping.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very good. It's, it's more the wastage. So like, it, I forget the numbers, but it's like 30% of products that get made never get sold, which is what? kind of insane. So if you think- Where's the, it go? Well, it just goes in the landfill historically. But now there are, is legislation coming to place to stop that. But yeah, it just gets canned, which is kind of insane. Um, Why? You think What's wrong with The it? supply chain that goes, they just can't sell it. So H&M is a good example. They have a billion dollars of inventory on their balance sheet. They just can't sell. They just, no channel is it economic for them to sell it historically you would ship that unsold stock to often third world countries, but then that would completely decimate the local economy because you have all these free products arriving, which then ruins the local kind of, yeah, exactly industries. So it's historically, if you look at fashion, it was initially a very like luxury good. You had your tailors. It was, you know, people didn't tend to have a whole load of clothes and then innovations within the supply chain. You had scale manufacturing, brought down the cost of production which was pretty cool and so what you did is essentially design driven industry you created new products every every year every season the cost of production was so low that you could afford to overproduce Essentially, you produce a ton of product and then you sell it and part of that is the lead times are so long like it's only recently and there's some really interesting companies that are doing made to order products which is where we were looking initially but on the whole the lead time for a shoe is nine to twelve months in terms of design then shipping and okay. and actually landing within uh within the front customer and whatever um and so if you have that lead time and it's a style driven industry you have to take punts in terms of like what's going to sell 12 sure months yeah now. yeah I get it, and you're yeah. going to get that wrong and i think that's where it kind of comes from it's like the whole industry was built around cheap manufacturing long lead times and, and delivering cheap products and and so this is where we wanted to start we We're like having run a uh a, a brand in the past i been stuck with a ton of inventory I couldn't sell, yeah. having seen the issues with dealing during the design process at, at MakeSite, which is where I was GM, you don't have the, the kind of feedback loop is so long, you can't really get a good read. And so our, our theory was, okay, can we do something around pre-selling? Can we do something around like shortening that time from uh, sale to delivery or concept to, to delivery of a product such that you cut out this waste? Trying to pitch or build that sort of business in the middle of a pandemic which has closed the retail networks of all the major is not ideal and there's some people doing some really interesting stuff out there there's guys uh, called uh, Unmade and um, a few others in the US that are doing kind of made to order so they have re-engineered looms essentially to make product on demand which is kind of cool and we we didn't have the expertise or the kind of really interest to do that because that is at the moment never going to be this scale part of manufacturing for an H&M, for example. It's just the unit economics don't work. So we were were then kind of thinking through what is an interesting part of the fashion ecosystem that we can can hit on. And during a pandemic, when everyone has a whole lot of inventory, they need to liquidate at the most efficient price. You know, cash is king in that situation. We realized, speaking to a lot of people in the industry and from experience, that Digitization within digitization is a shit expression. Really In terms of like the use of analytics within fashion is pretty limited. Like it runs on Excel, it runs on facts it runs on email. And so actually enabling brands to use the data they have at their disposal to
1: make better demand forecasts, for example. So what, what kind of like data pretty, like I'm I'm a bit of a data geek. So yeah, what yeah. what kind of data are you talking about?
0: Something as simple as transactional information and product um, characteristics so is it a shoe what size is it what color is it what price is it and what's the past like transactional information for that product just using that information you can do some really interesting things so they're not using that that data already they would they use it in a very kind of um simplistic way which is is almost a necessity that that sounds kind of harsh but it's a case of they look at sales rates for example for a product they don't look at price elasticity, the impact of a price change on demand, which what you can do with that is really interesting. You can essentially kind of taking a step back. The information they have at the hand, they don't use because a merchandiser within a fashion brand is often managing a thousand products. And so you can't really go that deep if you're doing an Excel on all the products. You summarize stuff at at a higher level. So essentially they look at sales rates and they look at cover, how much inventory you have and use that to make decisions. Makes sense. But what you can actually do with transactional information is Get some really interesting um, insights into price elasticity. What is the impact of a price change on demand for a product? Which just using that metric, you can then put into some very interesting kind of optimization sure. problems to, to come, come out with, okay, how do we liquidate this product in the most kind of uh, yeah optimal way? I love That's that. That's really I mean, those are the
1: part. kind of things that are probably happening quite a lot in other industries. You yeah, know, that, 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 that sort of data science, yeah? Yeah, yeah. 100%. But to bring it into a specific use case within fashion is, is great. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's, again, it, it's very much the tip of the spear for us. It's like, given there was the middle of a pandemic and people were looking to, A, create as much cash as they can from the inventory they have, and B, you know, liquidate that stock in a way that is beneficial. It was a good place to start, but you can use that data for a lot of more interesting things. Allocation of stock across countries, across stores, Initial price optimization as well. That's something that's-
1: Look, the the great thing about what you do is you get to work with sexy tier one brands because they're the ones that got the biggest problems. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, what kind of brands are you working with at the moment? It's it's a good
0: question. I think the 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 one that's worth mentioning is, is Zara. They're the ultimately the people that
1: they are like probably the biggest clothing brand. He's one of the richest dude on the planet, right? So, he, the-
0: well, yeah. After, um Arno. but yeah. yeah, no, he. Um, it's Indertex, the head of company, Zara. They are the archetypal fast fashion brand. They're very efficient with their pricing, with their allocation. They're virtually integrated. They're a very interesting brand in that sense. And one of our advisors, a guy called Philippe Caro, along with us, has essentially built their demand forecasting and price optimization piece. So it's okay. like, okay, how do they... They're bringing out new product, you know, every six weeks. But at the end of each season, they have to liquidate it. They're optimizing for price, for floor space. And how do they do that in a way that's the most kind of economical? Zara is one of the brands we, we've, we work with. And I think what's interesting about them is they don't have a liquidation option for product at the end of it. So if you don't sell stock in store, they essentially liquidate. It, it gets sent to, sent to landfill. So it should literally, If it doesn't sell, it just goes? It's free. They, they sell it to people called jobbers, who so essentially is sold by weight sold by kilogram and that ultimately ends up in either like um often double countries or other channels in in kind of non-core markets for zara which is kind of interesting so essentially the 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 salvage price for product they allocate is basically zero so essentially all they're doing is going okay like what's the benefit in the very simplest terms of selling something at a higher price and having stuff left over which we essentially just throw away for zero price or or lower the price and sell more and have less that's going to landfill, which is kind of an interesting problem, but hard to do for people, very easy to do for an optimizer. So that's D- essentially
1: when you approach these, businesses, are they more motivated by the sustainability of what you can provide or yeah. are they more motivated by the price?
0: Very good, very good question. Um, externally they're very motivated motivated by sustainability yeah. internally ultimately it's like an roi it's easy to justify
1: right with yeah, roi yeah. yeah so i guess you if you're covering both bases you're in a good spot
0: yeah and i think what's interesting there is like currently something you sell for zero or something you send to landfill doesn't have a kind of cost uh, attributed to it but no. there is legislation coming in now which is far more interesting whereby actually if you are sending something to landfill without selling it there is a cost a tax essentially attributed to that which is which is then going to drive more of a, an alignment between sustainability and, and the kind of financial aspect of it, it. which we think is super interesting. But from a brand's perspective, um, they have to, given that consumers are so interested in sustainability, the brands have to at least have an have a external facing stake in that. I get that. In the current climate, marketing is hard, but do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much.
1: So when you help with these businesses, I'm fascinated to know, Hmm. do you measure the impact that you guys have in terms of sustainability? Because I had a fact here Yeah, I going to read to you. Okay. It takes 3,781 liters of water to make a pair of jeans. Do you measure that impact?
0: We don't, actually. It's something we're looking into longer term. And I think initially we didn't want to be disingenuous about the impact we're having on sustainability. So we took a very like, yes, it's an efficiency argument initially, but it's more of like, okay, how can you efficiently um, sell stock you have? Longer term, the use of data is going to be a sustainability driver for brands. but And calculating the impact of not making a product is super interesting for, for them in terms of marketing, in terms of internal um, uh, prioritization as well. So the product we've started with is markdown optimization. The next one we're bringing in is, is launch optimization. So when you're launching a new product, how much should you make? What price should you sell it at? That has a much more like, direct impact on sustainability. Making 80,000 and selling them for 10% more versus making 90,000 is it not an economic positive decision, but also from a sustainability perspective, it's super interesting. And then enabling them to measure that impact and communicate it from a marketing perspective is super powerful. I like yeah, that a lot.
1: So moving slightly, so you are, you're a fairly active investor, you know, whether it be through crowd or small lounge tickets or whatever. Um, I maintain that this is a well-kept um, and should be more spoken about startup hack is to, is yeah. to invest in other businesses. Yeah. Now you don't have people always thinking like, "Oh, it's such a privileged thing to say to say you invest in other businesses." But the truth is, you can, you can invest in a syndicate. You could put in like five hundred quid. You could go onto yeah. a crowd raise. Like you know, you can you know, throw money away and waste it by investing in Brewdog because the share price stays the same all the time. It's a <laughs> complete waste of money. But you can do that kind of stuff. And what you can do by doing that, or going onto like Angel Investment Network or Angel.co, you can learn about how other companies pitch, other companies position themselves what yeah. works, what doesn't. And also when you invest in a business, you learn a bit more on the inside. You start to see their reporting and so forth. Definitely. So was that part of your motivation when you started investing?
0: Yeah. I, I, there's so many different ways to look at it. I think one you hit on perfectly is like when you're assessing a company to invest in it, it gives you a very good idea of what people are assessing when they're looking at you. There's mm-hmm. a really kind of nice rigor from the other perspective to yeah. kind of do that. But I mean, I've done some stuff through crowd, which is very much that external point of view. You don't really get much insight or interaction with founders or into the kind of business they're
1: making it's also super polished and refined they they spent three months putting that pitch together you're not really getting into the weeds of it but at the same time you can see which ones are overfunded underfunded and if you want to go down the crowd route like it's great so if you have a physical product crowd's amazing
0: yeah crowd is i mean crowd there's like a capital allocation argument there as well where like if you want to have part of your portfolio to use that word kind of allocated to something that's slightly riskier but higher growth Crowd's an interesting way to get early access. Agreed. That. So that, like, there's a capital allocation thing there. There's also an element of like, getting an insight into what makes people want to invest in something. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that. Um, I think the most valuable for me as a founder has been investing in other founders at a similar stage. Like um, Happy is a, is a product that I've invested in. What do they do? They do essentially financial planning for kids, which is really interesting. It's by a guy that um, was head of product at um, Tide. So the, the oh, was business he? bank. Yeah, nice. he's yeah, yeah, done it. Guy, um, Yusuf great guy he went through ef with me investing in them was mostly like they're fantastic founders and i believe in the product and the vision but it also suddenly you have like a friend a colleague a ultimately someone you've invested in so a founder that you can just troubleshoot with so he comes to me with problems that he has day to day and we share kind of thoughts. yeah, there. yeah sure we get investor updates from them, which is a very, great kind of idea mm-hmm. of what they're doing, we troubleshoot on basically everything. And I think for me, like that is just such a good hack to have a mutual interest in the success of a friend, basically, and getting an inside kind of look at what they're doing decision wise. You can, you know, with founding a company, I've, or rather, if think about angel investing and you think about feedback loops and whether you're right or wrong, often it's 10 years really. If something's gonna be a a unicorn, you know you don't get your money back for ten years. It's hard to really know if you're any good at it anytime soon. So like, okay, like what are you getting out of it? Alongside that, it's like okay, you're getting a lot of access and and data on decisions that people are making that you're not making and how that's working, which is super interesting. So yeah, there's a handful of them. Some it's curious in terms of looking at your own decision making as well. When you make a couple of angel investments, there's a couple where I've just been like, these guys are great. I like the founders, I like the idea. I don't really understand it a huge amount, but there we go. I'm willing to put some some so money more yeah. than that, which sounds frivolous, but as you say, like ticket sizes are not huge at angel level. There's also some really good tax schemes like SEIS and things like that. People the don't UK understand. Government yeah, do people this. are listening. Fantastic. So
1: EIS yeah. Yeah, means you can invest up to £100,000 a year, which is a lot, but you can invest up to £100,000 a year and you get 50% of that back in tax relief. And if it goes tits up, you get another 25%. Which is so, kind of insane. If you it's think mad. About that, it's yeah. The UK is amazing for investing in startups. It really is. Yeah. Um, exactly. So. <laughs> When you went to, I mean, look, I I invest all the time because I love being pitched to, and like the more That's people, and like, because I love pitching, so the more people yeah. pitch to me, I think to myself, oh, they nailed that, yeah, that yeah. was that was shit, don't do that. And then I come mean, like, yeah, back yeah. and I try to get through it. Yeah. I love it. I'm 100 um, percent founder led. I very rarely listen to what the product is. Um, I'm <laughs> like, I like this guy. I think this is going to be good. Yeah. So talk to me about your fundraising journey. So you mm. you go through EF, you get a mm. little bit of coin from EF. What do you get?
0: 80,000, which is a huge amount, but it's enough to get you started for sure.
1: It's enough to not hire people though. So you kind of have to do, it's kind of like, that's... You have to make a real decision. With ADK, you can hire
0: someone and then you and your founder are living off nothing, or you can pay yourself a little bit and, and then kind of work out, you can get a few freelancers on board if that's the way you want to do it. But ultimately, it gives you a lifeline to get to...
1: MVP. Initial...
0: Get to MVP yeah. and also get to an initial funding round. Sure. So that's, that's, totally. a, that's,
1: a good, yeah. that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. And is that on a note or is that on a, like an ASA? It is. A, it's a equivalent of an ASA. ASA yeah, yeah. Convertible
0: oh. note, basically. Perfect. What they do,
1: so. so if you, um, so how did you, what was your journey? So did you just, so EF, do they do like a, a pitch day where you, they bring in investors? Because you've got that manner next to you. It's like if you go through Techstars or Microsoft or, or YC. Yeah. Like when you get to that pitch day, because someone else has already vetted you. I mean, that's how I came across you. Like yeah. someone's already vetted you. Like these must be good eggs. Like it's... you're more likely to do well. So did you have a pitch day at the end?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a the way just to kind of give you the context on the F, the way that works in, initially, you come in as the sole, sole kind of founder, as it were, or, or an individual. They pay you a stipend. So what's quite nice about it is they actually pay you a monthly stipend at the beginning to you form a, a company. Priest? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. like clergy. Or yeah. a, or a uh, <laughs> academic, you yeah, know. Knows, just, yeah. yeah. Um, So pay us Life which is kind of nice. And then you have an internal pitch day, which uh, they then choose whether they're going to back you with the ADK or not. So then once that, once you pass that. Oh, so you don't necessarily get their coin? No, no, no. So because you're joining as an individual and they're investing ultimately in companies, you have to form a company. There's a a lot of like interesting dynamics internally about who forms, who teams up, who breaks up, how that all works. It's very much like the parallel with speed dating. It's kind of unreal. uh, Question. I mean, do you know how many people get through? Um, I think it's about twenty five percent. So oh, on so the whole, all the cohorts around a hundred, and then obviously most teams are two. That's you know I think yeah. the majority of them some t- some one some three, but on the whole it's two two founders, and then about twenty five percent
1: get through. Hyper competitive when you're in there. Hyper competitive as I well. as it like yeah.
0: there's a real incentive to form a team with. I was going to say the best people, but the best match for what you're trying to do very quickly. Yes. And then also they incentivize you to break those teams if it's not working. So there's a lot of rigor around like showing early traction um, within, like those, within those teams, which is kind of nice. And their ethos of productivity is traction for teams, which is
1: sounds like a bit of a slogan, but I kind of agree with it. I don't really you know understand what that means. I mean, I know what tractions are, what teams are. What do you mean?
0: Like the productivity is like how, if you're working with someone where there's a good chemistry. Yeah. Productivity comes relatively easy, which is kind of sure. nice. or if you're working with someone where you're in a, just a market that works very well. Some of the guys that went through, they set up a meal delivery business during the start of the um, pandemic, and they have absolutely flown. Oh, and that's man. just like, Fucking I think timing man. is, we, we haven't really touched on this, but like what's success It's like some of it's team, some of it's timing, mm-hmm. some of it's a ton of hard work. And yeah. I think you kind of need
1: three if you're going to really make it, which is interesting but um i love that i love that and also i think it's really great that they encourage that that competition because when you yeah. get out of there like it's rough like when you go and pitch to someone like when you guys pitched to me like that month i might have had 25 people pitch to me yeah. do you know what i mean like i think I,
0: fundraising in, in itself yeah. is just a wild ride i, I yeah. you've been on both sides of it and yeah. i think it's nice to have experienced it from both sides in terms of even a good funding outcome which is getting funded is still six months of 80% no, oh, probably more than that. And on the whole, from people that yeah, don't yeah. really take the time to understand your business and just, but then feel like they have to justify their no. And so they kind of just like take it's... ad hoc pitches, Like, yeah, so you just, you're in a terrible industry or you don't have the skills to pull it off. You're like,
1: okay, oh, thanks what? man, Yeah, yeah I'll yeah.
0: carry on. Yeah, yeah. That, thanks, thanks. Which for you, you, you
1: knew that when you got my pitch deck. Yeah, yeah, thanks for yeah, giving yeah. me the hour. It's something yeah, like yeah. I say to people, kind like people say, how rough is it? And I'm like, well, let me give you some context. So I'm obsessed with pitching. Okay. I, um, so I say, I'm obsessed with pitching. i am obsessed about it all the time. I have, um, I have what, of what's that? Exactly. all of it, just performing. I love, I love the, I love finding it. investors. I love the whole process, the sales process to me. And I'm a sales okay. guy, Michael. I love the whole process. You love fundraising. I think you're I lo-
0: probably the only person I've heard. I know to say they it's man. I, I,
1: I, I love the whole process because it's just so competitive. Okay. Cause yeah. I just put, I just imagined to myself, someone else has been on before me. Okay. And I'm going to fuck that person over. Okay, yeah. I'm going to do better than yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be more charismatic. I'm going to have a better proposition. And I'm going to get this person's money. That's how I feel like every time I, I go I think in, that's the mentality you have to approach it. With I love it. Risally, it. You know? And, um, yeah. and uh, I said to you, and I obsess over it. I've won global competitions for pitching. So I think I'm good at it. And yet it took me nine months to raise half a million pounds to begin with. Yeah, okay. I probably did a hundred pitches and I got like 75 no's yeah and i got some hard no's but so this yeah
0: is, that's what's crazy nine months for five hundred thousand. like yeah. having experienced it feels like yeah that's kind of fair especially if you're starting out but yeah. everything you read is like there's so much money out there everyone's raising yeah. rounds you can raise it in two weeks <laughs> people know. will be throwing money at you and you're like but in reality that's later stages yes i think if you have traction wow this, a team, is, this is this potentially it. that's true yeah but even then it's an it's an outlier well so, yeah early on early on especially in Europe, I'm curious your perspective on Europe versus the US, but
1: like... So, it's actually, I've got some, Yeah, do Yeah, so, I, so the first took me nine, nine months, and then the second raise, yep. my seed, took me two weeks. Okay, there we go. <laughs> so it took yeah, me yeah. nine months to half a million, and then it took me two weeks to two and a half. Yep. Which is... Uh, which is because, well... The two ends of the spectrum in the best possible I played way. the game. Yeah. I played the game because I'd learned so much. But Because every time you pitch someone, you're getting better. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yeah, but you have to treat it like... The, the key to improving at any skill, and you know this because you're an athlete, is is persistence but it's persistence mm. to like to keep learning it's not just like turn up every day it's intentional that make it, practice is that I mean, yes it's, it's not just turning go, up every yeah. day and just sit like you know i'm into martial arts and it's like just going up and hitting the bag every day like isn't going to make you any better okay yeah. it's going there with a specific target and persisting until you hit that target and when you're pitching every time you do a pitch come away from it and say to yourself okay like what did i get wrong here what did they resonate with what didn't they resonate with? And just keep going on that process and you will get better.
0: Yeah, so by the time virtually.
1: I got to my seed round, I decided, right. Okay. What are the three superpowers that I, that you need every time you go into a pitch? Okay. Mm. Number one is emotional contagion. If I'm excited, they're going to be excited. Yeah. That's, that's number one above everything yeah. else. The second is you have to just reek of credibility. Yeah. Okay. So like all those things that, that they're going to go and take away with them, like, You've got evidence of traction. You've got a great team. You've got a great brand. Everything when they look at your company has to reek for credibility, yeah. okay? There can't be anything they're like, mm, apps a bit shit, yeah. websites a bit shit, okay. LinkedIn's a bit shit. Yeah, none <laughs> of that. Everything has to stink of credibility. Yeah. And the last is, the, the most powerful is FOMO. Oh, yeah. yeah. So literally, first, first time, I literally got the phone to someone and I was the first pitch and I said, um, at the end of the call, I said to the guy, guys, I'm going to be, I really enjoyed this. The truth is, yeah. we're probably not going to take this to the next stage with you to the VC because because we've got some other guys in and i think they've just got bigger names. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm interested in this.
0: Like, so when you were raising uh, 500K over nine months, did anyone ever give you the advice of you have to create FOMO? And you're like, I'm five months into this. I'm not sure how I can generate FOMO. (laughs) It's It's like like a curious
1: thing. But if you're doing it over two weeks and you go in with that intention, it's... So it's the, fine, the because I we don't need the number, money. Yeah, yeah, but like over that yeah, yeah. first nine months, I'm paying for everyone's salary myself. Yeah, They're like, you know, yeah, yeah. my, my best mate, honest. Ross, who's my co-founder, he's like, <laughs> he said to me once on the 29th of the month, he's like, uh, do you want to know the bank balance? And I was like, no. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I think we might need some money. And okay. I was like, oh, okay, how much? And he's like, all of it. Oh, great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, you have yeah. that time and time again. But this was like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, you've got to create FOMA. I'm like, how? Yeah, it's the whole thing. Is like if you
0: need money, you're in trouble. You can never like go into a pitch. You've got to reek of credibility, yes, but you've got to reek like you don't need it. Like FOMO that's is the hardest scene. thing to generate. And I think scene. that's the the one bit of advice that I found the most useful, but also the least useful. Most useful when you understand how to generate it and what it means. But in that moment where you're like, we need to raise money, but we need to show we don't raise money. We need to generate FOMO and tell people we're not interested when actually we're wildly interested. And I found like that's a really interesting kind of thing to hold in your mind at the same time you're in there you're nervous you need this money but at the same time you need to demonstrate utmost confidence credibility I completely agree but also that kind of level of like nonchalance. and like I think that's where I'm not sure if this is true but a lot of people say like the American like mentality of effusive we are gonna crush it we are on like almost like to the level of I don't want to (laughs) say making stuff up but definitely like (laughs) Painting yeah. the rosiest possible picture of the yeah. current environment versus like a more kind of if you come from scientific background where it's like much more like based in reality it's it's a very much a recalibration you need to do. I do
1: that. the I it's am this is my tip for everyone if you're yeah. trying to create FOMO at the beginning. Yeah. I think you did it with me actually. I was saying this to Ross before you came on. I was like, <laughs> so my target was half a million. Yeah. Yeah. I told everyone it was one fifty. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so they will yeah. be like, so uh, how close are you? I so by the time I got to like. 175 yeah people are like how far are you target like, oh man i'm well over target like at the moment i don't i don't need this money this money's now yeah. just just give making me go faster yeah. and like so many people are offering me like i don't know really where to stop. like i might stop at 250 i mean you know maybe but if you want to bring something in i might extend it and then people are like oh shit yeah i want to i, I want to get in on this now our
0: experience and maybe this is just like you know then the you know i'm not pitching superstar but it's like we could generate fomo when we really didn't need it Like mm-hmm. we. Halfway through our fundraise, we got a grant from Innovate UK, which basically meant we were funded for 18 months. We were wow. good to go. We didn't need cash. Nice. And the minute you have that confidence of not needing it, it becomes so much easier to raise money, which is like it makes so, so unhelpful again. if you need the money to have that advice. Yeah. But it's um it's it that was a real opener for us. But I mean, coming back to like what our fundraising journey was, I've always thought fundraising is a, a, a kind of necessary evil. I've never particularly enjoyed it. It's but I think you can learn a lot to, about it. Yeah. And if you go in with that negative mentality, it's not a good way to look at it. But if you look at it like, okay, this is actually a kind of challenge, a competition, it's, it's something I can learn and get better at and it is a skill I need to learn, then it's it's really interesting. And the beauty of EF is you, so you have an internal, funder, internal funding decision. And then once EF is funded and you, you have another three months with them to hone a pitch that goes out to basically all the seed investors within Europe and some of the US funds. And so come demo day, which is six months after you've started at EF, you are pitching, in our case, remotely. We recorded a video and it went out live, but historically it was on a stage in front of all the seed investors in Europe, people who can write tickets amazing, several million and have, you know, in the past. And so that was really interesting and intense. Like yeah. three weeks of four pitches a day, just oh, kind of- The dream. You get very good, but also you kind of get sick of the sound of your own voice by the end of yeah. it, which is- But you
1: become so slick at it. You become so good by the end of it, you know, yeah. and you become so natural and- you know, like I said, to you, write down your, write down the questions you get, practice them, get oh, used yeah, to just absolutely. make it like, yeah, cause yeah. someone will ask you something and the worst thing you can have is that scenario where you're a bit like, Oh God, actually, yeah, I don't know the answer to that.
0: There is, I think some of the best advice I had as well was like, uh, we're big fans of Notion where we are, but you can use anything for this. Is like in those first dozen meetings, just record every, every question you get asked yep. and then write down your model answers, write them down in a notion, share that proactively with investors. And then you can just Kill is the wrong word, but preempt a lot of those like standard yeah. off the cuff questions. And you get to the nitty-gritty, the much more interesting questions, much more kind yeah. of earlier in those meetings, and, which I think yeah. is where the real ultimately at that stage you're investing in people and people they have to get to know you. And if they're constantly asking the same questions, <laughs> A asking and answering the same mm-hmm. question 50 times a week is 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 so destroying. But at the same time you can get <laughs> to much more like is, are they a good fit for us as much as the other way around? Because it's a Agreed. it's a long-term relationship with an investor. Like you can't you can't get rid of a bad investor from your cap table, and they'll be there for ten years. If you know, get rid of as you can, and it's, but, yeah. I can tell you it's. I mean, we've had this experience. It's, it's, to, it's incredibly expensive. expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can
1: do it, and it's really, it really hurts. Yeah, it really hurts. It does, and um, yeah, um, getting someone off there, it really hurts. As a consumer of fashion, loosely, how can I be more sustainable in my day to day?
0: It's a good question. I don't necessarily consider myself as a parable of sustainability, but something I've started practicing is just like buying, buying quality over quantity, buying stuff that lasts, like buying a nice leather bag that will last you 10 years rather than something that's gonna break in four. is kind of how I practice it personally, and staples, you know, less stuff that's gonna be out of fashion in six months versus something that you can wear for six years. That's the, that's the way I approach it. I'm not sure it's the wildly.
1: Okay, so what is your one piece of advice that you would give to every single founder?
0: Resilience is everything. Like resilience and like that, that manifests in so many ways. Uh, execution over idea is something that I think is so true. Um, but you just have to be resilient. Even if you speak to people that have been wildly successful, there are moments where you just got to dig deep. So you've got to love and truly believe in what you're doing. But I think resilience for sure is the one thing that I think is important because then you can use that as a, as a, as a test for everything you're, you're kind of concentrating on. Do you really love what you're doing enough? You're going to be willing to do it through the dark days as well as the good days. I think it's the, it's that that side of it that I think is important. There's a lot of buzz around the ups, the successes, but I think resilience is ultimately
1: the thing. Mate, you've been great. Thanks so much for coming to the show. It's been really great.